What's your carnal theory? Hey there, you're listening to Carnal Theory, where we talk with experts from around the world to learn how taking command of our sexual story affects our personal wellness, sexual experiences, and relationships with ourselves and others. I'm Amanda. Today on Carnal Theory, we're sitting down with Dr. Catalina Lawson, who has over 20 years of experience as a clinical psychologist, a researcher, and a professor in the field of sexual health. And her experience is from all over the globe. She was a part of the leading research team in the development of Aviva, the first sex therapy for Latina cancer survivors. She also hosts the Sex Marks the Spot podcast, which you can listen to and comes out on Wednesdays. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Catalina. Thanks, ladies, for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So as, as our listeners know, we like to start off each episode asking our guests to bring us the carnal theory for, for your consideration. For new listeners, the carnal theory, it's meant to be something that challenges a, a perception or a presumption that we might have about something. We'll chat about it for a little bit and we'll revisit it at the end of the episode to see if maybe even during this conversation, maybe our perceptions have changed on it. So Dr. Catalina, if you would, what's the kernel theory that you brought for us? So what I talk a lot about is I frame up as sex marks the spot. And I very much see that our sexuality and our intimate connections are central to our health and well-being. I also see this one question that a lot of my research as well as my clinical work has proven to be a very good marker for overall wellness. And that's when we ask individuals, how sexually satisfied are you? Because when we think about sex, of course it's not just intercourse, but sex is more about our, what we think, our emotions, how we feel and how we connect with our bodies. And in turn, how we connect with our bodies is also how we take care of our bodies and then how we can connect with others. So, so much when you look at every, pretty much every health indicator, weight, exercise, stress, every mental health disorder, um, diabetes, cancer, cardiac disease, the, one of the indis, in, significant indicators that generally actually falls off is our sex, sexual well-being. And yet it's so core to our overall quality of life. And so, so much of what I train a lot of physicians and therapists in is really asking that question, how sexually satisfied are you? Because by first just asking that one question, it one normalizes that this is important. And it's a very global assessment of how someone is functioning. And then from there, you actually can look and triage your questions accordingly to really highlight, okay, what's actually going on in your life? But by just doing that, anytime you bring up the word sex, people are like, hey. <laughs> and it's so interesting because with considering today, what we're going to talk about is, is a lot of the sociocultural factors that inhibit us from addressing sexuality. But once you do it, it's a, like a wide open door. <laughs> so I'm really excited about our conversation and very much this, the centrality of our sexuality and how that impacts our 
relationships across all of arenas when we're talking about not just intimacy but with our families at work with our friends all of that is central to how we're connected with ourselves and ultimately others i don't even know if you know that you're like saying our mission statement <laughs> What's what's cool is that uh, I'll say it in a second, but what's cool is that we've built my sex bio and, you know, carnal theory as, as the podcast um, arm of it. We've built my sex bio around this just like guttural instinct uh, intuition of of what you just said, but you're bringing like the scientific research clinical side to things. So uh, one of our key key mission points is we believe that sex education and empowerment is a vehicle for peace. Absolutely. Peace can, you know, translate that to, you know, social, emotional health, but vehicle for peace, peace that starts in yourself, that ripples out into your relationship or relationships, and then continues to expand out into your community and world. Because Absolutely. when you hold that, that sexual empowerment and educational peace with yourself, that's how it expands out because you have it. Um, so, um, yeah, that's it's it's wonderful to have it further validated. This intuitional, um, uh, yeah, mission. Well, and this question specifically, um, we a lot of my research has been with cancer survivors, and so we looked at about four hundred and fifty cancer survivors, and we used one of the um, index one of the like most popular sexual function um, measures called the promise. Um, and it's got lots of like, probably like 20 questions into it. And what we did was amongst our participants, we actually looked at, at the factor loading, meaning what actually correlates with distress, sex, actual function and health, all of these things. And the one question that came out was how sexually satisfied are you? Meaning that that one question actually accounts for the majority of the other questions. You know, it's so highly correlated. And when you think about when you start conversations, particularly if you go to your doctor, you know, what's the first thing they say? How are you doing today? Can you imagine what it would be like if within the first two minutes, a doctor actually asked you how sexually satisfied you are? Mm. Like, have you guys ever been asked that, even from your ob gyne No. I, it's actually shocking how many grand rounds I've done with OB-GYNs and they've never really been taught specifically how to address sexuality and sexual concerns. And I'm like, if you're OB-GYN and your urologist don't talk about this, who the heck is are you supposed to go to? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so it's actually quite interesting because there's so much, I mean, so much of my work has been uh, I was trained as a clinical health psychologist and then working in cancer, it's always been very multidisciplinary. And so the, the reality of sexuality is even in psychology, it's always been very segregated. It's in its own field. And the majority of the research is done at, with undergrads, um, <laughs> which are really early in their sexual development. I mean, our brain doesn't stop actually growing and developing until it's 27 and then it's super malleable but but that's a lot of where we get our understanding and then again bringing it to what we're talking about today most of those undergraduates are caucasian right you know and so particularly when we're thinking about sexuality and how 
individual it is and multifactorial, it's so interesting how reductionistic we are in how we talk about it, you know? Yeah. So I love that you guys are on this mission. And I do think that the more we talk about it, just start the conversations, the more it's natural. That's right. Like, <laughs> but we have to talk. That's literally prompts all of it. It's all about the conversation. Literally everything that we've built out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you. And thank you for chatting with us. For to, to loop our listeners in. So the theme this month at My Sex Bio is racism and sex. And so part of what we're we're gonna be talking with Dr. Catalina about is that intersection and how things are how studies are skewed, how things are skewed. So that's what we're gonna jump into. I do have one question first, which is how you got into clinical psychology and and why and then how that merged into the sexual side of things okay so um i started undergrad i went to undergrad at indiana university which is so funny because the kinsey's institute is there and i never did any work with them oh. um, but the first couple of years i went pre-med and then after my sophomore year i was like i hated physics i took it twice and really didn't like it and that was basically my barrier. I was like, screw it. Um, I knew I always wanted to get the highest degree I could. Um, my mom was a psychiatrist and also a workaholic. And I knew I didn't want that. And my brother was a physician. And so I had this um, idyllic idea of academia. Um, so I was like, I want to be a professor. Um, I always loved like, university campuses and that environment. And I thought, oh, I want to have kids, summer's off. And unfortunately, I went the academic route in like medicine, and that's not summer's off. And so that whole idea was like not at all my reality. But long story short, I chose, um, I knew I wanted to be a professor, and I was like, what do I like? I like to talk. Um, and it sounds so overly simplistic, but that really was a lot of, um, I'm sure there were factors. I mean, my mom was a psychiatrist, all of that stuff. but. Um, I just, I started really liking a lot of my classes. So I changed my major to psychology. I did an honors thesis and I started really looking at familial factors. Um, I looked at familial factors leading to binge drinking in undergrads. That was just my honors thesis. But then after that, when I started going to grad school, my biggest thing was I didn't want to work or be a therapist because I did think I had one for an abnormal professor who was like had a private practice and then taught abnormal. I was like, I want to be like him. So um, initially I did think I wanted to be a therapist um, and be a professor at the same time. But, um, and so I guess I just, I knew I didn't want to do therapy with people like me, meaning I'm highly privileged. Even though I'm a first generation, my parents were incredibly poor. I very much had that immigrant mentality of, I was at that time, middle class, upper middle class, and I had everything I could need, you know? Um, I never, my parents worked their asses off and they, I never felt, I felt so privileged that when, even though I had depression that started, my first bout of depression was, I think I was 18. Um, I was like, what do I have to bitch about? Like, mm -hmm. I have everything, you know? Um, even though I was, I experienced lots of racism, I always very much that immigrant mentality of, it's, it's, you're fine. You're lucky. You're be grateful. And so um, I knew I didn't want to work with people who were privileged. So I was like, and I also realized how hard change is. So that led me to really want to work with people who 
I felt like I would have some empathy with meeting people who were dying. Um, and that made me go into chronic illnesses. And my first, um, my master's thesis looked at HIV amongst African-American women in Baltimore. And this was in 98 to 2000. And Baltimore had the highest incidence of HIV at the time. And this is probably for you guys like, you guys are a lot younger than me. Um, <laughs> but like at that time, much of the HIV research was done with gay white male. And so the incidence of HIV amongst African-American women, much of this was through IV drug use or because their partners didn't ever tell them, you know? And, and so I was bringing women to meth clinics and really learning about a lot of the health disparities. And one of the biggest findings I found was at the time, social support was getting so much, oh, it's so, so important. But the reality was that actually wasn't a big um, indicator for quality of life in my participants in my study because they actually didn't have a lot. You know, a lot of them were single mothers. They were on welfare and, and there was a lot of shame around them having HIV. And regardless of if they didn't get it from IV drug use and they got it from a man, there was no talk of that. It was your fault. And all of these women lived in shame. And, and so a lot of that really started, I knew I wanted to work with, with immigrants or ethnic minorities. And so then in my PhD, I started working with Latinas and looking at cancer, um, cancer prevention and cancer survivorship. And that was really where I started focusing on recent immigrants and looking at the sociocultural factors and systemic factors that actually in shape perceptions of our health and particularly around breast cancer um, and a lot of the stigma around it and how that actually shifts preventative health and also shame. And I mean, I met so many women who literally would have end stage breast cancer be lactating, but would be taping up their breasts because they weren't able to talk about it. And I mean, and the same thing even happened with one of my great aunts. I mean, she had metastatic breast cancer, was lactating. She was like 80 and nobody even noticed, you know, and I found this out on Christmas like five years or seven years ago. Um, and these are just the realities of, of being a minority, particularly in, in, in America, where health disparities are the highest of any Western country in the world. And so, so much of that emphasis was really what I went into um, focused a lot of my career on was looking at ethnic minorities and immigrants and how that um, influences cancer prevention and cancer survivorship. I then started focusing um, in my postdoc, I did research with African-Americans and Latinos, but then I also really, one of the things through my clinical work realized was is that when people get cancer, it's not just them. It's very much their partners too. And so one of my first grants was to develop um, a coping skills strategy training for individuals and their partners undergoing bone marrow stem cell transplant. And so, um, so we trained them. This was done at um, Cornell in New York. And, and really what we were looking at was figuring out how we can train them to manage the uncertainty of transplant before going into transplants. And we looked at how that actually helped them moving forward. And what we found was, was that when you real, like particularly at the time, positive psychology was getting so much, you know, there was a lot of challenges in it. And particularly in cancer, this idea of just be positive actually started showing that that ended up inhibiting people from actually 
being real with their oncologists. They would report less pain. They'd be more non-compliant because they wouldn't talk about side effects. So it was really, really opening up this door of how do you actually maintain realistic optimism? And amidst, you know, in a bone marrow transplant at the time was you're going in at 50-50 and particularly I was working a lot with multiple myeloma patients where it's not a matter of if you're going to have a recurrence, it, it was when. And so you're going to undergo one of the most extreme types of cancer treatments and still you're going to have a relapse. That was the case at the time. Things have improved much more in the last 15 years. So my couple's work kind of kept going and I really was starting to focus on that. And then honestly, I started getting jaded. I was a professor at University of Sydney. Um, I started off in New York at Baruch College and then I moved to University of Sydney and, um, and was in the psych department there. And I just kind of got really frustrated by the, the segregation between research and actually what's happening in the world. And particularly, you know, the healthcare system in Australia is amazing. You know, it's socialized and their disparities are very different. It's also very, it's just not as diverse of a place. And coming from Manhattan to then living on the beach in Sydney, I felt like I was in a bubble, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I got a little apathetic and I was like, screw it. You know, I'm either leaving academia or I'm going to really work hard and talk about something I really love talking about. And I've always loved talking about sex. And then in my clinical work, it always comes up. So around 2011, I developed a team um, of oncologists and I partnered with Cancer, um, Cancer Council New South Wales, which is kind of like American Cancer Society for Australia. And we developed one of the first, um, one of the largest e-health interventions called Rekindle. And um, what we did here was, it was a psychosexual e-health intervention that integrated CBT and sex therapy. And we basically tailored it for cancer survivors as well as their partners, women and men rather than cancer specific, as well as it was the first sexual intervention to be um, tailored for heterosexual as well as same-sex attracted. So. Here we were really trying, so much of my research has been really to integrate and bridge the gap between what we know and who actually has access to it. So the idea here and a lot of my research has really focused on getting out this support. So we ran that study in through about 35 cancer centers in Australia and that was where um, I was telling you about the how sexually satisfied um, questionnaire came from. And, um, and what we found was, you know, one, a, a lot of the partners who would be in it, particularly if they were male, would be in it alone and wouldn't actually tell their wives that they were doing the intervention. Oh. So you saw a lot of the nuances of how, how, particularly in the context of cancer. I mean, I think one of the things I love about working with cancer patients is it's kind of like, you're doing this treatment to live and what is your life if you're not connected you know and so really putting the emphasis on on living to really fully living to me that was really what focused on sexuality so i did that study and then I moved back to the states and then started focusing more with latinas and then i developed aviva which was um and we're testing that now um 
and it's an app for Latina cancer survivors. And I do a lot of done some work in Southeast Asia and, you know, it's just kind of built and built and built. Um, and at the core of it is, is very much integrating so much of, I mean, I've been lucky. I've been worked, I've my own personal experience. I've lived all these different places, all these different countries. And then um, being an immigrant, but then also having worked with health disparities for over 20 years that I, I feel like so much of my work in the last few years has just been about integrating all of that and normalizing. I mean, I go into a lot of my work has been in Vietnam and Bhutan where, you know, one, they don't, most of them aren't seeing a psychologist. So it's great for me because I'm no threat. Like I'm not a surgeon, like the surgeons love me and I kind of look like them. And so they're all like, oh, they like take me under their wing. But I always get when I go into with Latinas or more rural environments or in Asia, I always get before I give a talk on sex. Now, just remember, these women are very conservative and, and they're not going to want to talk about it. And then once I put my slide up, they're like, so can I have sex with my husband? You know, <laughs> and it's like, and it's just, and then we get into it. And within two minutes, it doesn't matter where I go, like people will talk about it. And I feel like, yes, I realize I have, there is, I, am, I appreciate that I'm good at getting people to open up. But the reality is, is that that openness actually is what everyone is wanting to connect to. Everyone wants to connect to somebody where there isn't shame, there isn't judgment, and this is just be whatever comes up because we're all human. It doesn't matter what you look like, where you're from, particularly when it talk, we talk about our sexuality, particularly sexual function, and then particularly anatomy. Come on. This is universal. And so, so much that, that now through my research, my teaching, now I've left academia. I still do, some, do my research. Um, I'm still an adjunct at Rush Medical Center in Chicago. That was where I was before I moved to LA. Now I'm in a private practice and I primarily address sexual and relationship concerns amongst and individuals and couples. And, and then I really integrate, you know, I've been practicing Tantra for the last couple decades as well. And so I integrate a lot of these different things and it's really, it's really interesting. You know, I think that so much of where we are in the space and podcasts like you guys is it's, there's so many different voices and um, messages that people are going to connect with. So let's just all start fucking yelling, you know, like, let's all start having the conversations because it's a moment of someone actually connecting to it that can literally change lives. Like last night I had a, a, a group with, um, a, do a support group with gynecological cancer patients and I have one of my favorite patients in it. Um, she reminded the group about something I said like in January um, where we were talking about like how some people just make so many assumptions of because you're a cancer survivor, this is what you need. And, and she's like, but when Catalina said to me, you know, everyone does the best that they can in that moment. I was like, now, and I won't say her name. I was like, thanks for remembering. But you know, and it's that kind of shit that when you hear it, you're like, Oh my gosh. One, thanks for listening. Two, thanks for remembering. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So I do think it's just repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. And when you think about social media, that's actually the it, the way it works. I mean, and and on is is just that repetition, keeping it simple. 
and keeping it relatable, keeping it digestible. And that's why having so many different voices out there, it's going to connect, you know, mm -hmm. and having lots of disciplines. And number one thing is also, I guess, a lot of what my emphasis now is bringing the science to it. We have known this stuff. Like right now, attachment theory is huge. Attachment theories has been around since the mid 80s. But like, and that's, but when I was trained and I got my PhD in 2005, you couldn't talk about that. Like mm -hmm. not, you just, it just wasn't as accepted. You didn't talk that much about the past. You integrated family history, but not as much as it is now. So you see also influences and trends of what also people relate to. And then you have to make sure that you integrate science into that, you know, because this is where I do think it's important for people to have proper training, particularly because right now, and when we're talking about sexuality, the prevalence of prior traumas, particularly when we're talking about racism and this intersectionality is so incredibly high, you know, that you do actually need to be very well informed and trained to effectively hold that space, particularly when it's, it's meant to be therapeutic. So, so that's a little bit of my story. I think I just kind of rambled a lot. <laughs> no, it's great. It's a, it's a powerful story. Yeah. Clearly you've had a powerful, uh, powerful journey touching a lot of people's lives. Yeah. Well, and throughout it, don't get it twisted. I, I faced a lot of challenges in it, you know, particularly like when I came back to, I mean, Australia, like, um, they were just so much more open talking about sex. But then when I came back to Chicago, they were just so conservative. That's all I can say. I'm not saying all Chicagoans are, but by any means, but in my institution, it was very conservative. And I say sex and I talk about sex literally every day. And, um, and it's really easy for people's assumptions around that to shift their impressions of you. Um, and, you know, throughout this, I think everyone has imposter fear, um, you know, fear and, and like worries about their credibility, you know, and once I got my PhD, cause I, I mean, I'm, to be honest, I'm, I'm kind of the most, I'm a, I was always the like most energetic and loud of my family and my family is incredibly successful. So I'm the loser of my family. Um, <laughs> and, but that kind of took it after, once I got my PhD, I was like, fuck that, you know, like enough is enough. Like I criticized, I criticized myself. I berated my intelligence a lot, but then in your work, when you put yourself out there as a researcher in social media, whatever, you're going to get criticism. And this is where I say, embrace it. I can't, I mean, okay, cool. Let's have the conversation yeah. because I'm ready. Like, and so let's bring it, you know? And that's where like oftentimes when I love it, when I get um, any kind of feedback about my videos or something of what the hell are you talking about? That's not what I do at all. I'm like, that's great that that's not what you do. Like one person on my sex and racism video said, you know, that's not what I approach at all. And I'm like, awesome. I'm glad you don't. Plenty of people do though. I'm like, and I'm glad you don't, but don't think that this shit doesn't happen, you know, because we've got enough data and that's the thing, particularly in a moment right now where, and I'm just saying it, Fox News, Trump, all of these people are not data-based, you know, they're not listening to actually the facts that I actually think that we just need to make the facts more palpable. You know, we need to actually break it down so that it isn't such a a 
a hurdle to understand. Yeah. Well, because yeah. you think about gore, you know, and like, yeah. oh, it was just so stiff and stuff, you know. And I don't know if you watched Biden last night, but like, I mean, you clearly can tell they tried to coach him up to be more like Barack. Um, yeah. Sure. I mean, to be more relatable, more casual, you know, and not a dick. Like, how hard is that? Like, yeah. Like, just don't be a dick. Like, that's all I tell my nephew. He just went to college this year. I'm like, you're so freaking awesome. Just don't be a dick. Yeah. Like, it seems like it would, think be it would be easier. I know, but unfortunately it's not, you know? And then you have, and that's when, again, when we talk about racism, when you have power figures and when you have people who, with power, who are modeling this, that absolutely normalizes it. Yeah. It makes it yeah. okay. And let's talk and, about some of those social, social factors. Yeah. Like what are some, um, a lot of, I feel like in my head, I'm seeing like maybe two areas of influence. There's like socially constructed stereotypes that are affecting ability to connect with sexuality. And then also perhaps, um, like past trauma passed down through generations, generational trauma do you see more um, like intersections? What do you see as the intersections of sexuality and, and racism? So very much, I think, I kind of see it as a big circle with a bunch of circles built within it that are all overlapping. And the biggest one is, is systemic. Mm -hmm. um, because so much, and whether that system is our government, our healthcare, our education, or religious organization, there is so much strength in systems. And systems become automatic. I mean, that's the whole idea of a system. And so when you think about systemic racism, you know, and when I lived in Chicago and right now what you're seeing in the news is, oh, crime is going up so high. Well, no shit, Sherlock. We've got a convergence of all of the ingredients for, for the shit is hitting the fan. And we are early days of this pandemic, you know? So of course, and where are you seeing that crime? In three or four zip codes in the South side of Chicago, because it has been a systemically over the last 40 years, pushing all of the minorities to these three to four zip codes. And that is where you see every single disparity in murder rates, in employment, in cancer, diabetes, mortality rates, education, all of those factors you see in three or four zip codes. Mm -hmm. Systemically, that means that you're influencing education, healthcare, systems as far as police, um, even access to different services of water. I mean, I remember like, I mean, trash, what their environment, safety, all of those things, that is systemic. There are not, not opportunities for people to get out of that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so you have that, but then that trickles down into, okay, then what's the, the community's cultural acceptance of that? This is where you see oppression now beginning to infiltrate mentalities. Nonprofits, schools, teachers, doctors are going to start feeling apathetic and powerless in their positions. And then what are they doing in their supportive roles? They're feeling less empowered to actually that they can do and provide the support that they do so that then individually 
people aren't getting that support. Then you bring it down to the home. And then you have parents who have to work two to three jobs and their kids left at home from the age of six on their own. I mean, I was a latchkey kid. I mean, I just was lucky enough that it was safe. I was in a suburb of South Carolina, you know, but very much. I mean, I, that whole, I was very much of that latchkey generation. And that was just the way my mom worked six hours, six days a week, 630 to 1030 at night. Like, and that was just the norm. You know, but so then what do you get? You get stressed out parents and that that aren't able to notice or help their kids out with education. And when you think about socioeconomic status and education, what do people learn when they go to school? They learn how to learn. They learn how to analyze and they learn how to look for opportunities and take them. And that and then all of that trickles down. But then when you bring it into the family, then what do you have? You have mental health issues, domestic violence, substance abuse, and then that trickles down. And then you see generation after generation that trickling down on the, on the family, then to the individual, then that individual is going to pass that down. And then, then that carries on into how they proceed in their lives. Yeah. So, and, and we're not necessarily armed with critical thinking and creative thinking or systems thinking. So we don't have a place of of, of even visualizing what's going on big picture wise. And therefore when it does get to us, we don't, aren't, we aren't, we don't have the tools of, of how to, of what to do with it. How, how, how can I take this and either turn it into a good thing or turn it into something else? Because I, I don't, I don't have those skills. That's not what I was taught. Well, and at the center, center of that is, is even you saying that assumes that someone thinks they can. Right. Yeah, even yeah, yeah. thinks that they have an option. Yeah. So many people, because what oppression does is, is it teaches learned helplessness. Suck mm -hmm. it up, particularly as a minority and particularly as an immigrant. Just be grateful for what you have. You're alive, you're well, and hopefully you're eating. Be grateful for that. Don't strive for more. Particularly amongst immigrants, that's a very much a mentality because so many people risk their lives to get here. This whole idea, I mean, again, the facts around immigration, most people are not crossing the border. You know, like most people are not just working in factories. That actually isn't the majority of our immigrants. You know, they don't, I mean, but people, again, I think that there's so much complexity, but the reality is, is that we are just inundated and overwhelmed with all this craziness, particularly right now, it's, what major issue can you even do you want to focus on let alone can your brain handle and this is where when you think about fox news and you think about trump that's why they stay they are stay on brand they say the same things over and over and over they say the same four to five words because cognitively that's what our brains can handle mm. that's why it works yeah you watch those john oliver clips and it'll be you know like bloody blah word, bloody blah word, and you know, cut from, from channel to channel, them just regurgitating the same stuff just to drill it in. Yeah. 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 Well, and you think about like, when we're thinking about systems, think about every single religion, you know, like again, sure. prayers are repetitive. They're chants. Yeah. Stand up, it's, you stand it's, down. Yep. And again, that, that's, that is because that's how our bodies begin to learn. Yeah. And then it seeps into every part of our being, you know? And so when you're hearing, he's had three years to give his bullshit, like over and over, 
and everyone's like, everyone on the other side is like, WTF, but it's like, what the fuck? Actually, it's getting stronger because people are feeling validated in that. Yeah. And it's, it can be mind boggling for us, but this is where we got to remember. It's not like, oh, they're all idiots. No, this is resonating with them. Oh, for sure. Clear. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the one thing that happens when people are in immediate stress and overwhelm is, is, is that it's a survivor mentality. When you have a survivor mentality, you take what you can get. Yeah. You don't think holistically. You don't plan. Your brain doesn't have the cognitive capacity to do it, let alone the logistical or concrete resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this person's offering me a solution. They're the only one that's saying it to me in a way that makes sense. I believe this person's solution and that they'll do it. Well, and when we bring this back to sexuality, it comes to how much we feel we can actually do what we want. How much power and control do we have in what we do with ourselves, our bodies, and our lives? And that's where no's turn into yeses. I often wonder how, like, in the media, there's all these stereotypes and all these, especially related to sex, like, that go back hundreds of years that have just evolved into something that looks slightly different. Um, how do these like various stereotypes, even going back to slavery with um, with the black community, there's like the Jezebel, the Mammy, all these like historical stereotypes that have taken a place in current media. How do those affect people of color's relationship with their sexuality when someone is deciding what their sexuality is? Absolutely. Well, I think one of the things to keep in mind with all of this is, is the, the learnings that we have, how they influence both our explicit and implicit biases, right? Mm-hmm. So much of what you're, of, of these norms and those things, those messages that we hear over and over, they influence our choices of, of, of our partners Mm-hmm. And, and then you look at, I mean, and think about role models. I mean, I literally have one, one couple who I can actually say is a role model for a healthy relationship. And mm-hmm. I do relationship therapy. Like, <laughs> and uh, I mean, and I know a lot of people are married, you know, with kids. There's very few that we can actually look to. So but I do think that with a lot of these norms, they, and the gender roles that come with them, that's very much again, at the core of when we think about, when you think about attachment theory, you think about acceptance. You need to be acceptance. So this is where social norms actually really play in because first and foremost, safety comes from feeling part of something and connected. And so you're going to look, these, these norms, whether they've been explicitly told to you or implicitly implied, mm-hmm. those are going to send your brain's messages of, be like this, and then you're accepted. Be this kind of woman. Don't be, don't push yourself on this. Don't be too slutty. Don't hear those things. And, and then you'll hear, kids will hear messages of how their parents view other people. And then, and then you'll watch, you know, you'll watch things. I mean, and then particularly now looking at like social media and actually what gets followers. Like, I mean, and again, I know I, there's just, there's so many 
factors that I do think perpetuate these norms. And I feel like right now, with such an emphasis on looking at racism, I feel like it's the same thing with the Me Too movement. It's mm -hmm. really highlighting where we are. <laughs> like, yeah, technology and medicine is advanced like eons, but these norms maybe are, I actually think that they're just ex as explicit and implicit. What do you, you think know? keeps us stuck? Um, humanity. <laughs> Unfortunately, the or reality- thereof. <laughs> well, I mean, I, when I say humanity, the reality is, is that um, inherent in this need to be accepted, like is, is there is going to be, that's why there's, you're going to gravitate and resonate towards where, whatever body it is that you resonate closest with. And I do think that with media right now and, and, and with just what has become acceptable in, in our systems, you literally, all of those things trickle down so that people just think this is just the way it is. When the Me Too happened, boys will be boys. That's okay. And when we think about racism, what's the number one, I mean, literally, every, and I hate to say this, but the reality is, is every single white male I have talked to who I literally consider an acquaintance, maybe a friend, the number one quote I keep getting is, I'm not racist. But this idea of this immediate reaction when you talk about racism with, and I, again, my experience has been with white males. And of course, this is not just with them, but this is, you know, that's been my personal experience lately, has been, I'm not a racist. And, and again, that's where it's binary. And so when we think about it, again, bringing it back down to when I said it's being human, our brain thinks safe, danger. It thinks binary because that's what it immediately reacts to. So when, in moments when majority of people are overwhelmed and over and overstressed in westernized countries, all its brain is thinking is binary. It's not thinking holistically. It's not looking at dimensionality. It's not taking perspective. So immediately what you're getting is reactivity. Reactivity, reactivity, reactivity becomes habits, then that becomes lifestyles. All of those, in those moments when you have no control of how you're reacting, the choice is automatic and it's not an intentional choice. So as much, and this is where education and really realizing the community and the audience who you're speaking with, where they are in their level of awareness and tailoring your messages accordingly. Are there tools that you ever suggest to help cut those feedback loops? Well, so much of where, again, this is where it's, it depends on who, who your audience is. When, if I'm working with an individual, the number one thing I'm first going to talk about, again, and it's assessing what is their level of awareness. But mm -hmm. generally, where you're going to start is with your body. So, so much work has been focusing so much more on somatic um, therapy and really, first and foremost, regulating your body. Because again, in that survival mode, your body's either hyper or hypo aroused. All right. So, fight, flight, or fright, or freeze. So really what it's trying to do is first and foremost, connecting, heightening your awareness to what's happening to your body. Is your body, is your heart rate increasing? Are you breathing? Or are you actually, particularly amongst individuals who've had a lot of trauma, are you just dis dissociated? You have, you're numb. You have no idea, no connection. So first and foremost, you really work with an individual to reconnect with their body, heighten their awareness to that. 
because the thoughts aren't there. You have no consciousness in those moments. So cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't work then. So first and foremost, you have to connect to your body and then ground there. Then this is where the mindfulness comes in of, okay, where am I? Assess the moment, then access your cognitions and then begin to say, okay, how do I want to respond now? What are my choices? But even building from what we've talked about, there's so many levels in there, you know, that you actually have to just really piecemeal. And I think that this is one of the hardest things, like, man, I hope that this movement that we are going to is going to lead to change. But when you talk to most people, it's, it's, it's hard because you realize how all of these moments are choices and their accumulation of all of these choices going in a forward or a different direction, right? Because that's how, as an individual, your body learns, you know? And, you, and when it's, it likes the way it was, it thinks that right now, if it, it, is, if it is feeling safe, even when threatened, then and in survival mode, it wants to stay there. So again, so much of my work really starts off with connecting with your body because that's where then you can then actually ask yourself, what am I feeling? What do I need? And then ultimately get to what do I want? You know, yeah. because again, first and foremost, your body has needs and it, that's all it's reacting to. It's reacting to some need and figuring out what that is. But then again, so this idea of desire is at a place where you're already safe, you know? then it becomes. And then when you think about like, I mean, again, it's just like, oh yeah, get your basic food and, and water covered. Then, then, then have some stability. I mean, a manicure is like all the way down here when you're thinking about self-care, right? Yeah. And so when we think about our sexuality, it's the same way. When you are so disconnected from your body, even if you are orgasming, that's probably just an automatic response. It's actually not necessarily like it's a more of a muscular response rather than actually like a systemic um, emotional response, you know? Um, and so, and you may get, you will get some of the benefits, you know, um, as far as hormonal changes and things like that. But really when we're thinking about intimacy, an actual connection to yourself and others, gosh, the majority of people, it's crazy how disconnected we are. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned on your site, um, you say uh, sexuality is at the core of who we are as humans and where we come from, and it's our life force. And that when we embrace and prioritize our sexuality, that we break free from this expectation and the experience um, you get to the transformation of holistic healing. And I, that's, I think that's also the power in sex that is completely ignored, not talked about, lack of education, like ignorance, like, you know, um, uh, and, and, and just an untapped part of how we get that peace. Yeah. Um, and as, and yeah, as, and as we're talking about, like, that peace that echoes out and creates larger peace, systemic peace. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and it is just so interesting of literally how fundamental sex is for survival and propagation that there is so much shame around it and that our sexuality is the most intimate way we can express and connect ourselves to ourselves and others that there would be any kind of shame around it yeah it's weird it's like we yes it's intimate i think that sometimes there's this thought that if you talk about something it loses its intimacy maybe Mm -hmm. but then there's the what i see is a much stronger just reality that like most people aren't having that intimate side to begin with and that most people are getting closer to that intimate side when they are talking about it and exploring it verbally with friends, with their partner, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like it's like an excuse to not have the conversation because they don't understand the power of it. And just this like, loop. yeah, just this loop of not, 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 not knowing, which isn't to their fault necessarily or to anybody's fault. I'm not pretending like I'm like, sexually enlightened you know 100 percent or anything it's just we i'm not going to be if i don't explore i'm not going to be if i don't discuss well and um, again think about i guess the number one thing that when i when you focus on sexuality at the core of it is curiosity you know and this idea like you know i think a lot with a lot of the healing culture right now is this idea that, oh, we get to this pinnacle and yay, we're there. Fuck that. Like, <laughs> we're constantly growing. Our bodies are constantly changing. And this is where, like, I mean, I've worked with 18 months all the way up to 87, you know, like, and I've talked, I mean, I had one patient who was, I think, 76 and hadn't had sex in 12 years. And I mean, next thing you know, she was having multiple orgasms. Like, I mean, like, again, I do think that this goes back to so much of, particularly when you use terms like intimacy. Dude, I'm not taught, intimacy doesn't mean, oh, endless love and like, and like, Sade. Like, it doesn't have to be that. It can be raw fucking too. Like, I mean, it can be all of these things. Intimacy. And I think that that's where a lot of these norms and social norms and 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 just even with the jargon of how we the vernacular that we use to talk about it there's so many loaded assumptions around it and that's where i guess i think it's important to identify what are, what are the common patterns here what are those loops and because what you will see is is that the the biggest barrier to to embracing sexuality is fear doesn't matter what it is when you talk about shame what's the uh, end result you're scared of being rejected or mm-hmm. outcasted we've talked about that with guests before as well this that uh, the the incredibly huge carnal need to dismantle fear based interactions and that fear leading to um to aggression and rape and and self-hate and hate maybe for women or hate for other genders or hate for freaking anybody because you have been rejected and you don't therefore feel fulfilled so you want to you know you're going to take that out on somebody else so we have to dismantle that rejection equals 
anything bad. And that's, we, in that context, I think we're looping it into consent and the power of teaching consent and how can I touch your shoulder and hearing no, don't mean nothing. That's all right. Like, okay, they don't want their shoulder touched. Cool beans. Can I stand near you? (laughs) You know, like, like, like. Well, and this is where, like, I mean, this is the thing. Again, going back to a lot of the systemic racism and the oppression. I mean, in so many cultures, in more cultures than not, saying no to anyone you perceive as having more power than you is a no-go. You know? Like, in business in, in, in Japan, there's not a way to say no to your boss. Yeah, that's like, a powerful statement. You're right. You know, I mean, and I think that that's the thing that so much when we talk about assertiveness, we all, again, thinking about our audience, where are they? This the concept of assertiveness is like, what the fuck? Come on. Like that can seem so foreign. Literally last night in my group, I mean, I was literally talking to women who are in their 70s. And I was like, all you have to tell your friend is, I, I, I'm nauseous, I have the chemo, I don't want to eat. You can say no. And they're like, oh my gosh, these are upper middle class educated individuals, let alone go to a country where it is natural to mutilate women like vaginas. I mean, that's, come on. So we have a whole spectrum of what an individual feels like they can actually, this idea of consent, again, like, it's, it's such a, it's such a different worldview for so many people. Yeah, I just had this thought, like, dismantling patriarchy is having the safety to say no. And that goes for, for, for all genders, for however you identify. Like, that's what, like, at a lot of the core of it, it might be able to be distilled down to that. Like, dismantled patriarchy equals you're safe to say no to someone or something. Yeah. <laughs> and I do think that that's, that's why I guess I'm realistic of, at least in my lifetime, how much change to expect. Because this is where I go back to humans are humans. And throughout all of history, there's always been a hierarchy. And as long, and hierarchies feed on oppression. Capitalism feeds on oppression. It cannot exist unless you have minorities. It can't exist unless you have, you know, people who don't have as much power. Yeah. And I think that over the next few years, particularly with this economic decline, after a 2008 recession, we're going to see even a bigger gap in disparities now in the States. You're going to see the powerful get more powerful and the middle class get lower. We're seeing it. We're seeing I mean, it. And so inherent in that is, and again, you get one generation that, and right now it, it is, it's the, it's the millennials. I mean, they got screwed. They got screwed in 2008. They're screwed again. Like, yeah, one generation. And now that their kids, their kids now are going to start facing it. They're getting taught by their parents that, well, this is just the way it is. It yeah. sucks. This is just the way it is. Or it's time to rise up and change some shit. Hopefully. Hopefully. And that's, again, and that's where, like, I think when, when we talk about this, this is where 
we just gotta remind people, and this is where I do think it's on the individual level. Like this morning, I just got yelled at, like, for I had my mask like right here because I was drinking a water bottle because <laughs> I just worked out, and this woman yelled at me. Literally, had my mask here, and and I was drinking a water bottle. And she goes, "Can you please put your mask on? It's the law." And I was like, "Dude, I am all about mask wearing," but I was just realizing, I'm like that person's moment. And I put it immediately on. I stopped drinking and I put it right on. But I'm like, I can't drink my water with it on. Of course, I had a mask on. I'm right in front of my building. I am absolutely a mask wearer. I'm like, but what happened with that little microaggression? She is having a hard day. And this is what we got to remember. And this is where compassion comes in. Assume no malintents. Assume everyone's doing the best that they can in that moment. And, and you know what, take it as it is and then make the choice of how you want to respond, you know? And by doing that over and over, you feel more in control of yourself. Because when we talk about sexuality, this is the paradox of it. To really embrace your sexuality, you actually gotta let go. But you're not gonna let go unless you trust. And who do you need to trust first and foremost? Yourself, you know? and. But like, and then let alone opening that up to a partner, God, we make so many assumptions of what others want, what, other, what, are their, what their actions mean and all of these things. But it's just like, oh God, everybody just, just pause. And this is where so much of the regulation stuff comes in. Pause. And even during sexual encounters, pause. I mean, shit, hopefully it's more than a minute, you know, like pause for two seconds and reconnect with yourself so that you can actually just check, where am I? What am I wanting? The automaticity of sexuality, like really, this is where, particularly when you're looking at long-term relationships, there's reason intimacy dwindles is because we stop to reassess. Because we think, oh, that's good, that's fine. Next thing you know, it's gone stale. And again, talking about the act, acts themselves, but also the interactions, you know? Thinking about friendships and even our family. I mean, one of the beautiful things that's coming out of COVID is, is everybody's having family Sunday night meetings on Zoom. Who the hell did that? Like, <laughs> I mean, before, you know? Like, I mean, so I do think that there's, I mean, and now like so many, we are able to connect so much more like, and this is absolutely going to change. It's changing how we're connecting and what is it doing? Increasing accessibility. Mm -hmm. Like again, and, and then with that, I mean, all there's now it's, it, we really are changing the landscape. So I agree with you, Abba. I do think that I am optimistic. I'm realistically optimistic though. Like, and, and I don't think that that needs to be negative. And if it's perceived as negative, well, too bad, you know, but I do think that like, I, that, that there's just so many opportunities, but I do think that we're also inundated and overwhelmed that we also need to give ourselves some grace to just be really present to the moment. Do what you can in that moment. Be nice to yourself in that moment. You'd be nice to yourself. You'll be nice to others. Maybe. Yes. Grace is good. Thank yeah. you for, thank you for these, these thoughts and words of wisdom and facts. <laughs> can you, yeah. can you share with us uh, and share with the audience one more time what the theory is that you brought for our consideration? 
Yeah. So really at the center of my work, I call it sex marks the spot. And that our sexuality is very much at the core of who we are. It's very much where we came from. And it is our, that our sexual energy is what we can harness to actually manifest the life and live the life that we want to live. And I do think that it is ultimately how we connect with ourselves truly, honestly, with no judgment that we can then actually, as, and I love your really use of peace, give peace and love and connection to others. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today and for everyone who's tuning in. We really hope that this episode has given you something further to reflect upon and reach out to us with your questions and insights on our Instagram page at Carnal Theory and definitely check out Dr. Catalina's work um, on drcatalina.org or on Instagram at dr.catalina and also on YouTube. There's some wonderful, wonderful videos and resources to explore there. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Dr. Catalina. Absolutely, ladies. Thanks so much for having me. Carnal Theory is produced by My Sex Bio. Our sound design is by Audrey Cohane, and our theme music by Men the Universe. My Sex Bio is an educational platform built to empower people like you to take command of your sexual biography. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, and Spotify at My Sex Bio. Visit our website and join our e-letter at MySexBio.org and support our work by joining our Patreon. Thank you.